that whole yeah. it's my pleasure thing, I was really freaked out by that. <laughs> I was like, this is, and they're I like asking me five times yeah. if I need anything else. And like, oh, I don't know you. <laughs> like, all I'm doing is ordering a chicken sandwich. Why are you in my business about this? Your, our aura is very, Kara's aura is so close. It's so close. It's, so, it's too close for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Soul Blazers, the podcast that ignites your inner fire and empowers you to blaze your own trail. I'm your host, Kara. And I'm Amanda. Together, we are here to share our stories, insights, and wisdom to inspire and guide aspiring trailblazers like you. And like us. So whether you're learning to start your own business, seeking personal growth, or simply looking for that spark to set your soul blaze, this is for you. Where are you from? I was born in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, but Lexington is two hours from where I grew up, up in Carter County, Kentucky, in a booming metropolis of 4,500 people called Grayson. It was sort of two towns closer to the interstate from where my dad grew up and one town closer from where my mom grew up. So it was close to home for them. Uh, it was neither of the towns that they grew up in, but it was... Um, close enough and nearby enough that I really grew up with a big extended family, aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents um, in, you know, Appalachia, for sure. How about you? Where are you from? So I grew up in Arkansas. My dad was a basketball coach, so we moved quite a few times before we stuck in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, which I don't know if anyone's heard of Pine Bluff, Arkansas. It's like top crime rate in the nation and my dad was a basketball coach there and then became an athletic director so I grew up I actually went to Whitehall or Whitehall High School so a very small high school never saying where I'm from I never felt like I fit like growing up I never felt like a, a fit of my surroundings which is kind of funny now looking back that's just part of my story so yeah I'm from Arkansas really proud to be from Arkansas my grandmother, Georgia, a trailblazer for me in all aspects of my life, lived in northeast Arkansas, so I spent a lot of time there in a very rural area, and then went to Harding University, and that was in central Arkansas, a Christian school, so grew up very conservative. Um, my parents weren't so much conservative. They, were, they weren't, like, really religious, but we never missed church. And that was a really big part of my life. I went to church three times a week, and I went to a Christian college that was very conservative. And after that, went to raise my family that way. And things have changed in the last six years, but in general, that's kind of where I would say the beginning of my base is. So I went to a liberal arts school in Lexington, Kentucky. Well, first, I spent one year at something that's still hard for me to say out loud because it's the butt of many a joke uh, from a far side cartoon a million years ago where a kid is like pushing on a pull door at something called the Program for the Exceptionally Gifted. So I actually went to the Program for the Exceptionally Gifted. At, at what grade? I mean, what age? How old were you? Uh, I was just turning 16. I'd gone through the 10th grade uh, at East Carter High School in Grayson, Kentucky. I was a part of something that probably lots of people did, the Duke Talent ID program where you take the ACT or SAT, I think in the seventh grade when you're like 12. And um, 
did well and got recruited into some camps. I went to nerd camp when I was a kid. Uh, a camp for, are you ready? These titles are amazing. No one would ever do this to a kid now, but it was called Camp for the Verbally and Mathematically Precocious Youth, Bambi, <laughs> at Western Kentucky That's University. Awesome. Yeah, and then... Uh, I was never invited to any of these camps. <laughs> and then PEG, the program for the exceptionally gifted at Mary Baldwin. I spent one year there. It was abundantly clear to me after the first semester that it, it, it just wasn't my place. It was an all-girls school. My mom's got five brothers. I'd grown up with uncles, and it just seemed strange to me to be in this, like, all-girls environment and... I only had a brother, and a lot of my friends were boys, and I don't know. All girls was not for me, so I transferred to Transylvania University. The mascot is not a vampire. It's a pioneer. Transylvania is known for being the first higher education west of the Allegheny Mountains. It was kind of the original Wild West in the days of sort of Daniel Boone. And my dad had gone there, and I'd grown up driving by the campus and hearing about him going to college there. But it's a pretty true liberal arts program, meaning it comes from the educational philosophy that to be a well-rounded person, you need to study all the primary disciplines. And so I took things like religions of the East with a guy named Phil Point. My undergrad's in biology, so I, I studied biology. I had really great faculty there. It was tiny. It was When I went there, it was like 1,100 students. And so... It was a really academically rigorous, intense place. You know, it's kind of a doctor and lawyer factory. Very few kids, like, graduated and got a job. Most people went to grad school of some sort. And I went in pre-med with the assumption that I would absolutely be a physician. When you went to college, what did you think you would be? Well, I went to college wanting, I mean, my whole life. That's actually funny. It's from, like, fifth grade. And I'm like, Abby's not even going to know who this is. I wanted, I would watch 2020 on Friday night, and I was like, I just want to be a newscaster like Barbara Walters. I didn't really want to cast the news, but I want to interview people. So journalism was something I was always super interested in. My mom was a teacher, a great teacher, Montessori teacher. Um, and I, so I really was in her classroom a lot. And that's what I ended up finally being, was a teacher, because I just got talked out of doing anything like journalism. You know, that's scary. It's not... It's not like one of the jobs that you get and you can have forever. It's dangerous, so I didn't do it. And if you think back now, what would you have told your like younger self about that decision? I would have said, I would have definitely said, go for it. Like, go into the journalism, go to the places, just go. Like, don't don't worry about the money because it was always like, oh, you might be. You might not make it. There's there's some, no jobs in journalism. If you're not great, if you're not the best, you won't get a job. And with teaching, I knew I would be great at teaching. I knew, I, I knew, because I didn't know anybody that had done journalism. I didn't know any, like I had no resources and I didn't have any trailblazers ahead of me to follow, unless it was Barbara Walters, and that seemed very far off, right? Yeah. So that's, but I became a teacher and didn't mean I wasn't unhappy being a teacher. I actually enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed it a lot, and that's, until I was, until I realized I could do a lot of other things too. You know, that's a really important point though, because I often ask the students in the entrepreneurship classes, like, how many of you have 
a family member or a close family friend or someone in your sort of inner circle that's an entrepreneur and most of them do because if you are self-identifying and like exploring entrepreneurship as a path as an undergrad you have to kind of have seen it you know I think we undervalue the role that exposure plays in people's professional choices you know if if all the women in your family and everyone in your community is a teacher it's really hard to not be a teacher you know that happened to my mom so my mom's from a long line of teachers her mother was a teacher her grandfather had been like the superintendent of schools she always wanted to be a dentist a friend of hers father was a dentist but she got talked into via uh, college counselors and family members or whatever the idea that you know that was a really hard path and she probably you know should do something a little more dependable and safer and so she was an English major she did student teaching and was on the path to become a teacher and she really didn't like it and maybe could have absolutely done it it's not I mean she's certainly a good editor and critic she corrected almost every word that came out of my mouth most of my life but you know I think it took a lot of nerve and I know that my dad was a big supporter and a helper in her making that decision but to really say like nope I'm not going to be a teacher I'm not going to do what everybody else did and go back to dental school well in that you can probably understand this in that Christian culture I, that I love. It's what raised me. I'm really, I really love that, that the village that raised me. But that was like, if you do something different, it's not a good mom job. And so since I always knew I wanted to be a mom, being a mom is like to me such a gift. And I knew I wanted to be a mom. It was like I need to have a mom job so that I can be flexible for kids. Looking back, if I could, I mean, I'm not saying I would regret anything, but looking back, if Georgia or Harry came to me and I and had the same plate that I had, I would 100% say, of course, any job can be a mom job. <laughs> any right. job can be a mom job. I guess I just thought life is easier. And as a seven, I don't know, for a seven, feeling pain and things that are hard, I'd like to say it's a seven. It might just be how I'm wired. Doing hard stuff was, you know, like, oh, why wouldn't I just do the easy path? Being a teacher was easy. It's something I was good at. It's something I enjoyed. It's just that's something I think I would have changed. I would have probably said, "Try it. You can always be a teacher." Even for me, I was on this very prescribed path to medical school, and then I had this really specific experience of going to shadow a physician in a clinic that was run by midwives, and it became abundantly clear to me that what the midwives did in the clinic was so much more of what I was interested in than what the doctor was doing. I don't want to interrupt you, but you got to talk about this clinic. This whole, this story right here that you're just kind of dancing on is to me powerful. Like what was, what kind of clinic was it? Cause that's uh, interesting. For me, the version of that story is I was on this very prescribed path to becoming a physician. I had taken all the classes. I had taken the MCAT. I was like ready to make applications. There was even, you know, a new medical school opening up in my state, but I went to go visit a, a clinic at the University of Kentucky, and the clinic happened to be for teen moms. It was like an adolescent pregnancy clinic, and I was there to follow the physician. I was there to follow, actually, the perinatologist. 
but the clinic itself was run by a group of nurse midwives and the physician was just kind of doing his part he was a nice guy but he was just coming in really didn't interact with the mom much listened to the baby's heartbeat did fundal height measurements basic clinical stuff but the midwives in the clinic knew everything about every girl. They knew, you know, if she was still living at home. They knew if the baby daddy was still involved. They knew if she was still in school. They really knew the patients as people. And it's no dig on the doc because the physicians didn't have the time or the bandwidth. It was not their role, right? But when I really thought about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to interact at that point as a very young student. How old were you? I must have been 19. I graduated undergrad when I was 19. So I would have, I guess, turned 20 before I started midwifery school. So I started midwifery school at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee in the fall 99, I guess. I graduated in the spring and I started, yeah, yeah, the fall. Um, I started grad school the very next fall going into we're the exact same age and that was like I was going into my sophomore year of college um which is hilarious and I was thinking of nothing but having a good time <laughs> well I mean I was having plenty of fun too because I'm stressed a lot so. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah really I, I wish I could have seen that I wish yeah. I could have been there yeah that's awesome okay then tell me after you get that Vanderbilt how do you get to Harvard <laughs> well, skipping a few steps, but basically, I went to midwifery school with kind of a social justice angle. So to bring it back to the Enneagram, like fives, when they're healthy, lean toward eight, sort of the high side of eight, of, you know, leader, challenger, challenging authority, and, you know, I don't, I can't really tell you how I got interested in women's health, but I was, and I found it appalling that maternity care in the U.S. was so bad, and it was actually better then than it is now, but uh, it just felt like, wow, like, how can, how can anything about our healthcare system be more important than taking good care of moms and babies? Like, that's, that's literally starting from scratch. That's starting from, you know, the prenatal period health can only get worse, really. Like, you're starting from the get-go. How do we protect sort of innate, normal physiologic health so people don't get sick? I went to midwifery school definitely interested in patient care and interested in individual women, but with this kind of population, social justice focus. And I had I had an incredible faculty member named Liz Howard. We're friends today. I, like, babysat her kid and thought she was awesome. And she was, like, young and cool and fun. And, like, you know, when you're a student, you have faculty members who seem, like, authority and, like, you know, separate. And then you have faculty members who are relatable and seem more like peers. And Liz was that. And she really encouraged me. She was like, you're good at math. You're interested in numbers. Like you should think about research. You should think about a doctoral program. And she happened to know a woman named Elise Lieberman, who she introduced me to. And it was really something that I, I kind of just kind of giggled. I was like, yeah, yeah, right. Like, that's not gonna happen. Like, that seems 
It's like Barbara Walters that it seemed completely improbable to me. Um, I moved to Boston not to go to a doctoral program because I was getting married and my husband-to-be was living in Boston. He was a consultant and um, his consulting firm was in Boston. So I was following a boy. I was not chasing an educational dream. I was not trying to get into Harvard. I was going where my mate was and figuring out what I was going to do when I got there. So I got a job at a freestanding birth center in Wellesley, Massachusetts as a midwife practicing, but also was pursuing this path of research with Elise and her lab. And then she encouraged me to apply to the doctoral program. I didn't know then because I was young and naive and I was from you know, a rural place. I didn't know that the way those programs work is the faculty have a lot of say-so. As long as the student meets all the criteria, the faculty kind of get to choose their doctoral students. And I just kind of thought, yeah, yeah, well, I'll apply, but I'm never going to get in. And I did. But it was really a very, like, person-driven, you know, somebody who knew somebody and it really was networking and like individual relationships that's part of teaching the Enneagram as I say to the students in the first class like business life is a series of relationships and for relationships to be good and really be of value to you you actually have to know yourself enough to have that open exchange. Like you can't really know somebody else if you don't know yourself. And you can't have you know, the depth or the breadth of interaction that could open doors and get you opportunities if you're not willing to self-disclose, if you're not willing to pull your guard down and say, this is who I am, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm not, are you willing to help me? Yeah. You know? And I think in this podcast, we're going to give tools to finding that. Because you it sounds easy, but for me, that is like, well, who am I? Like, that's a hard, you know, not all of us have that kind of self-awareness to know oneself or how to do that. And I think throughout this podcast, we're going to have a lot of tools for our listeners and, and doing it together um, in, as the podcast of being vulnerable and figuring out how to know who oneself is and finding our superpowers. Kara, what, I know what your superpowers are. I would love to tell, I would love to describe them, but what would you say your superpowers are? Well, I don't know if it's a superpower, but I always say that I'm good at building connective tissue, about pulling information from lots of different disciplines and lots of different areas of interest or inquiry together to make a cohesive storyline or product or you know being able to look really broadly at something and sort of pulling all the strings together um wow what would you say this? i would say your ability to like let people be and without judgment having that neutral stance and just and like assume you you do assume good intent like you see you see greatness in people in like a very unique perspective that's one of your ways and you let people be without shame that's like I think that would be probably the superpower this one I mean a hundred percent you are 
in my experience with you, which has been a my favorite thing about you. I was like, <laughs> oh, I love this. This is so great. It's, I, I wish I could just take the camera and show this to everybody, but the way you you are the smartest person in the room. You don't, you're not, it's not a cocky way of you knowing it. You are, and the way you handle it is like I drool. Like it's super impressive. And I don't know if you're going to get to see that on this podcast, but I've seen it. And you don't care. You do not, you do not even walk in thinking that, but you are, and it comes out so beautifully the way you can, you can take, it's harder for me to connect the dots. It's just not in my DNA. You connect the dots super quickly and you're able to put it in different terms for others to understand. Like you have this like, okay, let me, instead of like, what's that, what are those books, the dumb, what are the, uh, layman terms, what are those books, the Bible, the Oh, dumb, like for dummies. Bible for dummies. Like you can do that and be like, okay, Amanda, let's talk about um, supply chain for Amanda. And you can put that out <laughs> in like my term or supply chain for Abby. Like, how is Abby going to understand that? So when you say, like, teaching people, like, where I'm like, let me show you how to love learning. I can bring the enthusiasm and passion and, like, why everybody should love this topic or be interested and how this topic should be personal for you. You're like, here's how I can help them understand it and teach it. Like, you can see, you can take, oh, Amanda's visual, I'll draw the picture. Or he's literal I'll I'll put it in literal terms he needs an example from Star Wars we'll take the Star Wars example and put it into sourcing that has been what I've watched you do and I find fascinating and I hope that I hope I can learn to do that better through being around you yeah or I would say don't just do it your way so what's your superpower <laughs> what do you think your superpower is oh gosh I would definitely say I would but now I would guess I mean I think I have a lot of superpowers, but one is definitely bringing a positive energy to every, to most situations. It's really hard for me to look at something in a negative way. I do have fears, and I do question. I'm not saying I don't, and I do get down. I definitely, you've seen me in really dark moments in my life, but I would say in general, my brain is just wired to just um, enjoy everything I'm doing. I agree. And you're a natural promoter. Like, you are, like, uh, truly the, like, Don King of just life. Like, you are the most natural promoter of people, of products, of experiences. And that is, like, a really special ability that is, is undersold in so much as it doesn't come naturally to most people like you have something great to say and you're not it's not um it's not bullshit like there's meat behind it it's not without thought it's very intentional and thoughtful and it comes from a place of of understanding of truly having a positive experience that you want other people to have too like that's huge that's something that i think um, allows you to endear yourself and be a part of lots of groups and bring people together and bring together people that don't necessarily have a lot in common other than knowing you and that's great that's like something that I think if we had more natural promoters sort of involved in public discourse uh, 
we wouldn't have quite such a divisive, you know, public rhetoric or sort of political commentary if we had more people who were able to see the positive in all sides. All sides. We wouldn't have to have such, you know, negative confrontational politics. Yeah, you're probably right there. I mean, I, I, I can get confrontation. But in general, uh, yeah, that's actually, I can, I feel like that's a good, they're great. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. That, that means a lot to me. Um, on top of that, a superpower you and I both have that I wish, this is what I feel like would help me love people more if they did this. <laughs> If, oh, every, like that. if all the women in my life would do this, I feel like it would make me be way more vulnerable because I'm super vulnerable with you. And all I have from the very beginning, I have been full on, no secrets. It is a rare gift I've had with you. And I don't do that with everybody. And is and if because you pulled yourself out of the competition. And I have pulled myself out of the competition. And I say competition is like, I'm pulling myself out of the competition. It's okay if my kid didn't, didn't memorize the Bible when everybody else's kid was memorizing the Bible verses. It's okay if I um, didn't go to all my kids' sports games because that is a trophy. That whole, like, just doing all the things in the mom world, in the business world, if if like, you know, we say, do you know, it's the doing or the not doing or the, uh, you know, I mean, we can t say it for marriage of like, as soon as I pulled myself out of the competition where I wasn't doing all the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing because all my friends talk about being afraid of not doing or, or they're not doing enough, you can feel this fear. As soon as I pulled myself out of that competition of like, I'm just not going to care. It has made life so much easier for my kids, for my husband. He loves me way more that I'm not, you know, trying to do all the things. And so pulling out of the competition, and you did that. You Maybe you've never even been in the competition. <laughs> that's, that's the difference. That's possible. Yeah. Kara, you were born like, I ain't competing with nobody. Me, it wasn't I wanted to compete. It was just like, it was that like, oh, it's just having to, I don't know. What is that? What is that? Well, I think, again, it comes to that, like, social instinct. Like, I'm not as geared for group social interaction. And also, this is kind of a fab thing, and maybe a manifestor thing. Winning doesn't mean anything to me. I'm not, I am not wired for achievement. And people laugh because they look at my resume and say, like, oh, right. Or, like, I mean... My close friends would tell you, like, I'm the B side of the record. I am not a type A personality. I am not tightly wound. I am not trying to shove as many things as possible into a day. It's just not who I am. And so I, my competition was always with myself. It was always, am I meeting my own expectations? I never had a lot of... And maybe it's because I was always a little different and just a little off sort of the normative pathway so I didn't ever feel drawn into that like keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing I just didn't I didn't have that now certainly as a mom and as a parent I definitely had times when I felt like maybe I'm doing this all wrong because I wasn't 
I had too many things going on to be worried about the PPO meeting or being at every sports event or whatever. I really saw it as like, well, I want the kids to go to the sports event, but I'll be there, the dad will be there, or their grandparents will be there. Like, you know, I was raised by a village, and so I believe that children should be raised by a village, and I didn't see it as my role to be the only person my kids could ever look to. Like, my kids would tell you, like, they have a lot of aunties in their lives. They have a lot of my friends who they have grown up with that they have, like, you know, a, like, uh, iPhone notes document of, like, the list of aunties and phone numbers of, like, if you can't find mom, call one of the following 15 people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, someone will be available. Um, but I think, you know, that's one of the things I hope we can take as a theme as we, like, you know, move our way through these podcast episodes is I'm so much more interested in collaboration. I think most things, even though I would tend to do things on my own, are better together. Better together. Better with someone else who brings another set of thoughts and feelings and experiences to it. Most things are stronger when it's not just one person, you know. I don't think solopreneurship is kind of a trend right now, and I really think that that is great as long as we understand that nothing is really a solo endeavor because you still have a team around you. You still have people that you rely on. Even if they're vendors and it's outsourced, it's never really on your own. If nothing else, it's your family and your friends and the people who you bounce ideas off. And I think you know, seeing things through a lens of collaboration totally erases competition from even being a part of the conversation. And I want to that comp. I think you and I both say this: is the competition is also control. It's just like having control of every aspect of your life. It's like you don't live in a control. You're not. That is like controlling would not be something I would ever put around you because you are opposite of that. And that sevenness in me is like, I do not want to be controlled, but I do like, I was more in control, which is very fear-driven. It was just very fear-driven. And so that's the competition, that whole fear-driven mentality and having control of all the things when it comes to, you know, all, you know, anything in my life. But I think that's been freeing. And that's something you just do naturally and it's something I've had to, it's a practice I've had to learn. Because, I was never. I always felt I did. I would do Bible studies like three or four times a week. I loved doing Bible studies. I loved learning the Bible, but I never felt like I knew the Bible enough. Like it was like in that world, and so in that whole like consistent. I was never praying enough. So when I took that out of like, maybe I'm not going to have to compete with how many. Maybe I'm not. Like maybe it, maybe it's okay if I don't read the Bible for a minute, or maybe it's okay if I just pray when I feel like it or having a relationship with God that's like more natural and not so controlled and intentional and you know that's kind of been religiously that whole controlling has been nice to relax from. And if I have any religious or spiritual tradition at all at this point in my life it's really 
Buddhism and from the Buddhist perspective, the entire goal of life is letting go. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're taught not to fear, but it's just like, golly, it also is like counterproductive because you're, I was so afraid of going to hell. <laughs> I mean, it's like a messed up. No, but I think that's, you know, that's the truth of, especially what Southern Christianity has become is it's quite fear driven. It's like, the idea of creating uh, obedience from a place of damnation rather than what I think the real like message of Christ was all about love, right? And so how did it get to this place of like hell and, hellfire and damnation? Well, I don't really know, but I suspect that it came from societal pressures, not from, you know, the essence of the story of Christ or whatever. As I sort of think about, like, okay, so, you know, I finished a doctoral program. You were already in Arkansas, but how did you end up in Northwest Arkansas? How did you make your way to Bentonville, and well, when? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I wanted to, when I when I was in college, and all my girlfriends from college will tell you, I wanted to be like, what was that show with Michelle Pfeiffer in, in Harlem, and she went to be oh, a teacher? Yeah. And it was a song, Gangster's Paradise, yeah, was like yeah. the thing. I was like, I'm going to be a teacher in New York City, in Harlem, or in somewhere that was like, low socioeconomic and I'm like that's all I want to do is like be in that and I just couldn't get it I didn't get, I like applied and of course my little application I had nothing on it but I just got a degree why would you not want to hire me if you just met me they never even called and I got a job at um, Asylum Springs as my first teaching job was not dating anybody I um, move up here and Chad was in college uh, at the same time, he was, and I, my girlfriend, and that's, I'm going into the story of Chad, got my first teaching job. I loved it. I was teaching sixth grade literacy. I loved it, but I had all these students coming. They couldn't understand anything they would read. They would read it so poetically, and then they would not understand a word they read. And that was like a weird thing for me, going, I had no idea how to help them. Like, I just got this degree in education, and I don't know how to teach these sixth graders how to understand what they just read. So I went and got my master's in reading, which was a whole lot of like how the brain works and picks up information phonetically and phonemic awareness and, and you know, understanding comprehension. It was so fun. That was so fun and invigorating. Unfortunately, in the middle of that, I fell in love with Chad. So I don't like, I don't know how. <laughs> unfortunately. I thought, well, unfortunately, because I'm like all that information. I think I was thinking about Chad at the time and like how I could get him to propose to me. So how quickly we could get married, I think, so it makes me laugh. But anyway, he got a job in Bentonville, and we both got married, moved to Bentonville, so I didn't teach there very long. But it kept us in northwest Arkansas, where, like, you know, now I'm, like, telling my kids, go, go all the places. But living in northwest Arkansas and raising our kids here, so as teacher, was not, has been wonderful. But that's kind of what got us here, is Chad got his job at Tyson Foods uh, in the audit department. He was an accountant, and... You know, as a teacher, an accountant and a teacher, I mean, can't beat that. Winning. Winning. Hashtag we winning. Yes, we thought we were we were killing it in life. We, so anyway, that's how we got here. How about you? What year? I guess it was, we got married in 2005, and we moved here in 2005. Yeah. So, um, Marcus and I, so my first husband's name is Marcus Osborne. The guy's great. Uh It'll unfold over time. There's no hard feelings. Uh, we just grew.
grew up to be different people. We've been, we were together since I was 17. We met at a fraternity party at Transy when I was a sophomore and he was a senior. And um, I think, you know, we were very aligned in causes and what we wanted to be and do in the world. And I owe a lot to him about sort of exposing me to the bigger, broader world. If I'd gone to med school, I would have stayed in Kentucky. I would have never lived outside the state. But um, going to Vanderbilt and then following him to Boston, I was exposed to a much bigger, broader world. And anyway, uh, I finished my doctorate, and he finished school at Harvard Business School. He did an MBA there uh, in 2007. So we already had a two-year-old, and we had a new baby because that's what crazy people do is have kids when they're in PhD programs. But uh, anyway, we moved here in 2007. We kind of knew people a little bit. We had both worked for the Clinton Foundation's HIV and AIDS initiative, and there was a guy named Skip Rutherford, who now is the dean of the public policy school in Little Rock, who kind of told us, like, yeah, that's a great job. Marcus was recruited to work for Walmart you know, you guys will love it there. They play SEC football. It'll be great. It'll be like Kentucky, but less hot. Anyway, so we got here in 2007, and, uh, you know, it did feel and look like home. After 10 pretty long, cold, miserable winters in Boston, Massachusetts, as a kid with a southern accent, it was nice to be back in a place that felt more like home. But I remember the first few times that I, like, drove through the drive-through line at Chick-fil-A, I was like, why are they so nice? This is like really off-putting, you know, after riding the subway in Boston for 10 years and people there are cranky, you know, people think like it's a- Time out, that Chick-fil-A, that was the first Chick-fil-A in Bentonville. I know. I remember, cause I taught right beside it. That's that whole it's my pleasure thing, I was really freaked out by that. <laughs> I was like, this is, and they're I like asking me five times if I need anything else and like, I don't know you. <laughs> like, all I'm doing is ordering a chicken sandwich. Why are you in my business about this? Your, our aura is very, Kara's aura is so close. It's so close. It's, so, it's too close for Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I do not. Oh, now that they have that thing where you order and they bring it to the car, that is such a better experience for me because uh, they don't talk to you. Uh, and you don't have to talk to them. <laughs> So much better. Anyway, so we landed here in 2007. You were here in 2005. Bentonville, Arkansas was like a cow town with a great big Walmart, but that was about it, in the Walmart home office. But this place, and I'm sure it's something we'll talk about just because we have to by virtue of living here for so long, but has totally revolutionized. And I feel like it's such a fantastic case study for what entrepreneurship can do to a place oh can we talk about that for a minute because I think it's changed me I think Bentonville is a culture changer it's like if you live here and you use the resources they give you it's a culture changer for mindset I think so I think being in a place with a lot of opportunity you know it's why it's why the university is such an interesting experience for a kid from a small town. It's because all of a sudden you're in this place where things that you never dreamt were possible are right in front of your face and it's right there for you to go get it. It's right there for you to be 
a part of it. And we do have a ton of resources, thanks to both public and private efforts here in Northwest Arkansas that make entrepreneurship something that you can just go do. And people are receptive to it. We have a long history and tradition of entrepreneurship in Northwest Arkansas. And it's something that I really feel like we have to share with the world. You know, the university pulling entrepreneurship out of the management department and creating the strategy entrepreneurship and venture innovation department is is in and of itself a signal that this is something that we really are embracing about where we live and how we work. Um, I was with a guy last night, his name's Jackson Andrews. He's from the Endeavor Fund in Kentucky, and it was his first time to Bentonville, and he was like blown away. He was like, I can't really wrap my head around this. This is not what I thought it was gonna be, you know? And a lot of that has happened in the years between 2007 and now. I feel like we've gotten to be firsthand witnesses to like really incredible change and transformation of an area. I agree, and I think the people too, like the people here, they're are you are interesting and they want to make a difference and they want to be uh they want to make a change in the right direction they don't want to think that is one thing old that you know if you move here and you just want to live like everything's the same it's just not the place for you because it is so evolving yeah and totally also, and it's moving fast and lots is happening i think it's great i mean but i do think it's challenging for people, you know, for sort of Enneagram sixes, people who are really oriented towards safety. I think that can be really hard, you know, having really rapid change can be tough. And, you know, I have so much more compassion for that than I used to about why that's hard. I used to be like, what's wrong with you? You know, totally. and now I really feel like, oh, I get it. it doesn't feel safe. It feels like things are moving too fast and it feels unsafe and that's, you know, making it uncomfortable enough for you that you can't see anything other than that, yeah. you know. And for me, you know, the corollary for a five is about competence. So if I'm feeling incompetent and I'm stuck on understanding, if I if I run across something that I can't figure out, I can get so fixated on that that I totally, like, miss the plot. I totally lose the whole, like, point because I'm so fixated on some detail that I don't understand. And, you know, knowing those things about ourselves can help us kind of love it. As we reach the end of this episode, we realize we have just scratched the surface. There's so much more to explore, from unraveling the fascinating dynamics of the Enneagram to discovering Kara's remarkable transition from midwife to helicopter pilot to the many things she's doing now. And I cannot wait to tell you about how I started Hello Holidays from my garage while juggling a full-time job and raising kids. So stay tuned for more empowering conversations and enlightening words of wisdom from your soul-blazing big sisters, Karen and Amanda.